Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. June and the third of June and the homecoming on March twenty seventh August. There we go. All the stats. I'll get. I'll put that out in the intro anyway. So there you, you go. Know. See. All right. Thank you. Get out. Nice one. Great to meet you, Robin. Let's get into it, mate. Yeah, mate. Do I need to be closer or? Uh, I mean, it's totally. You tell me. I'm. It'll pick you up nice. Okay. Um, if you do fancy leaning in, then um, obviously that will be a little bit better, but. Um, But yeah, I must say, as a Birmingham boy, it is a pleasure to sit down with you today and get into it. For me, growing up, there was you know there was Black Sabbath and there was UB40, and they were obviously very different bands, but for me, represented the possibility of of life. Right. You know, both working class blokes that grew up in the Midlands and just pursued a dream, and you know, not just achieved and lived those dreams but changed in the process of of what they did the course of musical history and not to start too grandiose but i mean it's pretty amazing really isn't it when you think about the heritage the roots the 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 humble beginnings of a band like yours um, yeah and where it went and how many people the music has reached yeah you know that that kind of success you can't possibly imagine you know you just you have a dream of being in a band you have a dream of success of course you know uh but you 
you know, you just have no idea how far it's going to go, how long it's going to last, you know. And here we are, 45 years down the road, and we're still doing it, you know, still travelling the world, still selling tickets everywhere, and still making new records, which is, you know, it's all you want, really. Well, you guys have been prolific since the very start. Like, there's very few bands that have just been as consistent as you guys, not just with the quantity, but also with the quality. Um, it's phenomenal. It really is. And is it 100 million? Am I right in thinking that now? Yeah. Is that how many records you guys have shifted? Yeah, 100 million records and I think 50 top 40 hits. <laughs> phenomenal. It's ridiculous. Phenomenal. So put me in the... So I was born in 86. Um, put me in the picture of Where? the Midlands in the 70s and what that place at that time was like for you guys growing up as young kids getting into music and you know just being young and out and about in the streets of brum it's amazing how similar it is really you know she just shows you that nothing really changes and that everything's cyclical um very high unemployment you know people couldn't get the jobs they wanted i'm a few years older than the rest of the guys in the band um because most of them went to school with my younger brothers um but uh, so I'd had a few jobs in the early 70s. Um, but the late 70s was, was, you know, a time of struggle and strife, you know. Uh, it was when the evil Thatcher re reared ahead. So, you know, there's things... no such thing as, what is it, community. That was exactly. a famous phrase, right? Yeah. And ripped yeah. the heart out of so many. Absolutely. And uh, that was the atmosphere that we were in, you know, that we were. Um, making music in so obviously when we come to writing our own songs you know the the subject matter was pretty obvious for us you know um, even down to the band name right absolutely yeah yeah although that wasn't uh, wasn't an idea of ours it was a friend of ours that suggested the name because to form the band those of us that weren't working half of the band i think were already on the dole and uh, the other half went on the dole to form the band you know because uh, Nobody could play any instruments, or very few of us could play instruments. Um, so we had to treat it like a job, you know, do it five days a week, every day, turn up and uh, sit and practice, play, play together, learn to play together, learn to make music, you know, and that's that's what we did. And that was in Mosley, right? Yeah, yeah, because we all lived in and around Mosley. Um, I grew up in Borsal Heath and then moved to Kings Heath. Mosley's in between the two so you know that was uh that was our stomping ground really and uh, I think at least three or four of the band had uh flats in Mosley at the time um whereabouts are we talking I used to live directly opposite the Prince of Wales pub just down the road uh, yeah we the the flats that we were um we had our headquarters underneath the flat that belonged to Brian, well, that were rented by Brian and Earl. They had flats in Trafalgar Road. Um, and underneath there was a cellar. And Brian, being an electrician, he wired up <laughs> the mains to the meter so that we could plug in all our amps and everything down in the cellar, free of charge, of course. And uh, that was that was where we sort of ensconced and um sat and played for well, i don't know probably six months solid before we ventured out again you know before we ever did a gig um 
And yeah, that was it was the the hub. I mean, at the time as well, there was the whole punk thing happening, so there was very much that kind of attitude of anyone could form a band. You know, we'd been talking about it. Me and my brothers had been talking about it since we were kids, uh, because our father was a musician, and it didn't seem unusual to us that making music for a living, you know, wasn't possible. You know, it was. Uh, it was a normal thing for us because of what our father did. So we talked about forming a band, but never actually did it. We kept talking about it for years while we were kids. And then, when was it, 76, I think, we went and saw Bob Marley at uh, the Birmingham Odeon. Wow. And that was the big change. That was the catalyst, you know. What year, what kind of album cycle era was that? Was it Exodus or After or? Um, 76 would have been Natty, would it be Natty Dread? But him at his peak. I can't right? even remember. Well, not quite. He right. was nearly at his peak. He was, he was making moves, but I mean, we'd been listening to him since the very late sixties. Um, African Herbsman was the album, 1969, 70, uh, which was a sort of compilation album of his Jamaican hits. Um, and that was what turned me on to the Whalers. I knew a couple of their singles before then, but you know, when they were, when it was Tosh and Bunny Whaler, etc. When we went to see him in '76, it was just Bob Marley and the Whalers. You know, the uh, Tosh and Bunny Whaler had left, but uh, it was the nearest thing to a spiritual experience I ever had. I think um, it was it was packed, and as you say, he was. He was reaching his peak, you know. He was he was at the peak of his powers as a performer. He was incredible, and uh, we all came out of that show, all you know, saying to each other, "We've got to do it. This is what we've got to do. We come on, we've got to do it." And it still took us another couple of years, I think, before we you know bit the bullet and and actually, I mean, I was working at the time. I think I was working at Longbridge, uh, making cars, you know. Um, so I had a decent job, but, uh, it was a job I didn't want to do. It wasn't, I wasn't interested. All I wanted to do was make music. And I, to be honest, I wanted to make music with my kid brother because we've been singing together all our lives and I knew he could sing and I wanted to be in a band with him. I didn't want to go and join a band with anybody, you know, and it was a, it was a group of mates. It was our social circle. We were like a gang really. And we just... Uh, everybody decided what instruments they wanted to play. Uh, me and my kid brother were both guitarists, so that was it, Gu- guitar and vocals, and the rest of them fought over what instruments they were going uh, to get, you know. Um, and that's how it went for, as I say, it was about, about six months solid, and then we did our very first show. And it all happened so quickly, you know, it was ridiculous, really. We'd never done it before we'd never been in any other band you know it was just it was all brand new to us but the the success came so quickly um compared to other bands you know how hard other bands have to work we spent maybe 12 months uh doing i don't know a show every couple of weeks or something you know maybe 30 gigs over the first 12 months of 79 and uh and then chrissy hines saw us in our very first time in London, we were playing a little mini tour of 
clubs in London, uh, like the Hope and Anchor and the Hundred Club and places like that. And um, she came to one of the shows and uh, she had a number one album and a number one single at the time, Brass in Pocket. Mm -hmm. And she came backstage and said, uh, somebody told me I had to come and see you guys because you were great and uh, I want you on my tour. And that just, that was a springboard, you know, that launched us. We went from there. We, we went from doing 30 shows in 12 months to doing 30 shows in six weeks. And you know. pubs to arenas. Exactly. Right? Well, yeah, at the time it wouldn't be arenas. It would be um, sizable theatres, <laughs> you know, like the Birmingham Odeon where we saw Marley. It right. was, we played yeah, yeah, the yeah. same show. <laughs> um, and, you know, that kind of, we went from, you know, from dozens, 50s, or even we'd, we were up to hundreds, you know, because we were growing a reputation and we were playing pubs but filling them. You know, but we went from there to playing to two or three thousand sold out shows, you know, with the pretenders, supporting the pretenders. And that was uh, that was something else. We came off that tour. We released our very first single at the beginning of that tour and we came off the tour and we were in the top five. You know, we had a number four record, I think. So that was literally the launch pad for us, you know. And from that point, we released more singles. Um, I mean, we were working on, we were recording anyway before we met Chrissy, but we had, so we had material, you know, and we released the first single that became a hit immediately. Is that Food, 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 food for, thought? for Thought? King yeah. Food for Thought, yeah, double A side. Um, yeah, and then we finished that tour and we immediately rebooked the same tour for the band and sold it out, you know, it was, it was that quick and that ridiculous, you know. And uh, we acted as if it was totally normal and it was quite, it was what we deserved. <laughs> very arrogant, very full of ourselves, you know. I don't know why, looking back. Well, you're young, you're working class kids, you've been given the keys to the kingdom and, you know, you got like one of the pop stars of the day, you know, vouching for you and giving you that leg up. So it's as if to say like, we have, we have not only earned this, but we deserve it. Let's go, <laughs> let's have the crack. Yeah, and all of a sudden we're doing top of the pot and you know that was the the ultimate in those days you know that was all you wanted was to get onto top of the pops you know and uh, with our very first single <laughs> there we were having a while of a time you know and uh, as i say we we did it 50 more times with singles so we were doing something right we just we didn't know what it was you know we just we just were doing what we loved and making the music we wanted to make and trying to make, I think we were trying our damnedest to sound like a Jamaican reggae band, but of course we weren't Jamaican, so it was coming out different, you know, uh, which that's how music works, isn't it? You, you know, you get influences from wherever and you try to, you know, replicate that and it comes out somehow else, some, somehow different, you know. Uh, you've got the influences, but, but the sound you're making is a new one. And that's what you want, really, is to be making some a unique sound, you know, that turns everybody on. Well, that's what the Beatles and the Stones did, wasn't it? Is Absolutely. they're listening to blues, yeah. Motown, American rock and roll. It's and what they're it, it's trying what to do their does. version of that, but it sounds Absolutely. unmistakably yeah, like yeah. them. And in the process of that, it's new, it's original, it's exciting. Absolutely. And it's the same with any band that has, uh, you know, a unique sound, a longevity. The Beatles and Stones are the obvious 
choice, but also Black Sabbath, also, uh, I don't know, Status Quo. You know, there are many, many bands that have a unique sound and it turns people on. And, you know, if that's what you've got, then you've got the keys to the kingdom, haven't you? You know, and that enables you to keep going. But we were just, we never, we never tried to make a specific sound. We never aimed at, anything other than playing reggae you know and just doing what we loved and and saying what we wanted to say and it it struck a chord you know well i think what you guys had which was different is it was reggae as opposed to scar Mm -hmm. and two-tone which was obviously big at that point oh for sure Um, and i don't think there was you know maybe steel pulse but there wasn't really like a reggae scene with british bands doing it correct well or or was there there were some yes um there was as you say steel pulse and as what were the two um i'd seen both of those bands live both great live bands both playing great reggae you know but um i don't know there was just something different about what we did it that sort of hybrid you know and of course there's it was a much a strong influence of of english pop music as well yeah. because not only did we grow up listening to reggae but also we grew up listening to the beatles and we grew up listening to I don't know, the Everly Brothers and all sorts of... Tamla Motown, you know, was my big thing before I got turned on to... Well, before reggae was invented, uh, I was listening to American R&B, you know, and soul records, Al Green and Sam Cooke, and, you know, as well as Tamla Motown. It, that was, you know, what I was listening to. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because reggae was also a Jamaican take on that stuff, right? Of course. That's, that's that route. Absolutely. They were hearing, uh, I mean, if you talk to anybody from Jamaica, um, from that generation, they were hearing American radio stations and um, not just black American music, uh, also country music. Mm -hmm. They were hearing a lot because they were listening to radio from the southern states. They were getting a lot of uh, not just black R&B, but uh, country music as well and rock and roll and whatever else was going. That's for me, that's how music works, you know. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You absorb, you, you hear things, that they turn you on, and whether it's conscious or not, it becomes part of what you do, you know, because it's, a, it's a, an emotional um, and cultural exchange, you know. That's, that's how it works. So tell me this, Robin. You're young lads. You're enjoying a lot of success fresh out the gate. Are you enjoying everything that comes with success at a young age in the form of powders and herbs and women and parties and is, of course, is, is all of, of that course going everybody, on? Of course, everybody was having a whale of a time. We were young lads, you know. Um, I don't know about... It took a while before the powders got involved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, they never did for me. But... Right. Um, but yeah, we we were having a whale of a time, you know. For me, it's always been a little bit of gander and a little bit of a drink, you know. But uh, never used anything else. But uh, yeah, other people got involved in other things, you know. And of course, we were um, we were surrounded by uh, women, you know. So we enjoyed that too, <laughs> you know. That's 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 part of success, you know, and part of of uh, fame. And, uh, yeah, we were having a while over time. So you, did you enjoy the limelight? Did you adjust to it as, as well as one can? Because there's no reference point, is there? There's no 
No, there's no rules. Boot camp for yeah. how to deal with that. Once that happens and your life changes, you have to just you know. Ride I think it everybody out, right? deals with it in a different way. You know, every member of the band all dealt with it in a different way, in their own way. You know, some people dealt with it well. Others didn't. Some handled it well. Some didn't. You know, um, and I think it's down to your personality and you know what, how how you deal with life in general. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, when you when you get that kind of thing, it's it's difficult. It's uh, it's very easy to start believing your own press. You know, very easy to, for your ego to take over. And um, I mean, I've watched that happen many times, not just in our band, but with. Many other artists I've met over the years have become intolerable sometimes. But, um, you know, it's how you deal with it. And I didn't really enjoy the limelight, I have to say. You know, um, I guess I was I was an introvert, you know. I guess uh, I, I would much rather uh, hide away from it, you know. And I moved out into the country because I couldn't deal with... Um, the fame side of it, you know, because... If you went out in Birmingham at that point, would you get oh, recognised everywhere? Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, it, it was still nice. I never uh, I never had bad experiences. It was just, just a bit much. Too much, yeah. It was overload, sensory overload, mm-hmm. you know. You just could never just be yourself. You were always on show. You were always being recognised, always being treated in a certain way, you know. And... um it wears you down eventually, you know. You just you just think, I've got to get away from this. I've got to get out of this. I mean, I had I had a next door neighbour. Um, I had a house in Mosley, and I had a next door neighbour that cut a hole in the fence so that he could look at me through the hole in the fence, you know. And I'd be sitting watching TV, and I'd look out the window, and I'd see an eyeball, you know, on the hole in the fence with this guy just watching. And it the just, Joe, that just the became Joe, unnerving, you know. There's the Joe Walsh lyric where he's talking about fame. And he says, it's tough to handle this fortune and fame. Everybody's so different. I haven't changed. And it is that idea that when you get famous, you don't, in some cases, it's, it's how, not you who absolutely. changes. It's everybody else around you and their absolutely. Everybody's with you. reaction to you changes. because some, And sometimes people are delightful. Other times, other times, they don't know how to handle you. They don't know how to deal with uh, you because uh, it doesn't uh, happen to them on a daily basis you know you learn to deal with it because it does happen on a daily basis so you know um yeah the change is not in you but it's in the way other people you know react and interact with you so you had a good three decades almost of, of consistency with the lineup and and throughout this insane time yep. did you for the large part as a collective as a gang as a group did you remain close and friends and on the same page for the most part or yeah, did for it the all... most part definitely for certainly the first 25 years we were we had a gang mentality you know we were it was us against the world you know and that was we knew the business was cutthroat and you know we experienced that um so yeah it was very definitely you know all for one and one for all and uh, we looked out for each other um when we formed the band, we agreed that whatever we did, we would share everything equally. You know, whoever wrote the songs, whoever whoever wrote that song, that song, whatever it was, didn't matter what contribution you made, if you were in the band, you would get an equal share. So we split everything eight ways, you know. We were an eight-piece band and we split absolutely everything eight equal ways. So 
you never had an argument over whose song got used or any of that. You just did what you did. And some people did a lot less. Other people did a lot more. You know, that's just the way it is. That, that's different people, different personalities, you know, different work ethics, you know, uh, different abilities, different creativities, you know. But we had everything shared equally. And that was because of the gang mentality. You know, we were all there. We were in it together for, for definite. And that didn't change for a, a long, long time. Uh, I mean, when Ali left, that was that was 30 years in, you know, when he decided to go go it alone. That was, uh, yeah, that was 30 years of, I think probably the five years previously, uh, previous to that had been, it was getting more and more difficult, you know. And what would you say the reasons for the, you know, the, tension and the the cracks ego I think, it was you know um substance abuse to a degree mm-hmm. i think for some members of the band um well that definitely warps your own sense of self doesn't it that absolutely stuff? absolutely yeah and it, it it makes um you know when you're abusing yourself it makes it very difficult for people to deal with you and to deal with you in the way that they used to to approach you in the way that they used to and you know, because it changes people, you know, and that made life difficult. Um, but then there's also ego, you know, and ego eventually took over with one or two members of the band, which was very sad, really. Um, but for the first, you know, for the first 25 years, we hardly ever had a rare. And if we did, it, it hardly came to blows. When you consider there were, you know, eight macho men, yeah. you know, that had grown up together, there was, there was hardly, you know, I mean, there, there were angry words, but there were, there were never fights or anything like that. You know, it was, on, for the most part, it was, uh, it was a very strong relationship for a very long time. The golden years, in many ways, and I really love it. I actually watched the—I um, think it was made in 2016. There's a BBC documentary uh, called "Promises and Lies," based on UB40's story, and it, it honestly makes Oasis look like the best of friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Fucking hell!" Um, and it's—it's it's a shame, isn't it? Uh, more than anything else, I think it's just—it's a tragic shame that. Um, the business side of things and as you say ego can split not just bands apart but families apart in that way yeah yeah it's sad but you know by the time it happened we were all ready for it you know we were we were all quite relieved actually you know to be brutally honest when when Ali left it was traumatic because we were all going oh my god you know we've got to carry on without him now and he's been our lead vocalist for 30 years you know so it was it was a trauma, but at the same time, we were actually quite relieved because he was getting very difficult to deal with, you know. And he was he was very changed, you know, uh, and his ego had taken over. So it was um, you know it had be, been difficult for a few years, and and in, as I say, when when he went, it was 
it was a relief, really. And we started enjoying it again when we got Duncan on board. Of course. Yeah. Uh, my other younger brother. And he was initially around, obviously, but did he decide he was going to go to, was it Barbados or something, to be a croupier? That's and he was right, like, I've yeah. got a good gig here. I'm not going to be in the band. So there was almost like unfinished business. He didn't have business. the same faith. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. all believed in it totally, you know, but he was just, he kept saying to me, yeah, it's not going to happen now, is it, Rob? <laughs> and I kept saying, yeah, it is. We're doing it. We're doing it for real. This is it. Serious. And I said to him, come on, you know, you've got to be in the band. We've sung together since we were small children. You know, we've been a three-part harmony uh, unit since, since we were kids. If, you know, if the three of us will be the BGs of reggae, you know, I mean, I just, for me, that was, it had to be the three of us, but he just, at that time, you know, he was, a, he was a croupier and uh, he had a, he had a decent job and he was enjoying himself, you know, and he just, he just said, no, I'll leave it. Thanks. And I think, you know, obviously within a very short time, he was bitterly disappointed that <laughs> I've really that blown this said no yeah and and you know it became difficult to, to get I'd have had him on board at any point you know but uh, the rest of the band were going no he said no and that's it now that was the way you know, it was was yeah, it yeah we're we're the band yeah you know you can't just come here Johnny exactly, come lately exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. otherwise we'd all bring our brothers and yeah, sisters yeah, yeah, in yeah. you know we'll be a 20-piece band um <laughs> And we split the money 20 ways. Exactly. We all get yeah, half. Yeah. yeah. You can't be a Johnny come lately, you know. You can't. We all committed to it and we all get the rewards, you know. And that was the way it was. So, uh, Duncan, was he just Duncan the obvious missed the boat, fit, though, you know. When oh, it came time to. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and when I went, went to him and said, Ali's finally left, you know, do you want the gig? He said, of course I do. You know, Absolutely. But he said to me, I won't do it unless Ali gives me his blessing. And I went, but he's left. Why do you need Ali's blessing? He said, because he's my kid brother. You know, and I said, and I'm taking his job. And I said, you're not taking, he's vacated the position. I was really. It was black and white I to was you. boiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just said, look, he's left. You know, I'm offering you the gig of a lifetime that, that you missed out on. Do you want it? And he said, of course I do. Of course I do. He then spoke to Ali, who, and I was in the room when he did it. We were talking about it, and I was saying, what do you need Ali's permission for, you know? And uh, he and Ali had always been very close anyway, right. um, because there's only like 10 months between them, you know? They're Irish twins, as they say. <laughs> um, so they were kind of inseparable as kids, you know? Um, so he, he wanted Ali's permission or Ali's blessing anyway, you know, and um, he he spoke to Ali on the phone and I was sitting in, in the room and Ali said, well, why would I, why would I say anything or you do what you want to do? It's nothing to do with me. I've left, you know, and Dunk said, okay, great. And he never spoke to him again. <laughs> to this day? To this day. And same with you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Is yeah. he, he's obviously not in Birmingham, I'm, I'm No, no, he moved down to... Bournemouth, um, before he left, he'd already moved away. Right. You know, and he was the only one who'd moved away. The rest of us were all still in and around Birmingham. He'd moved away to Bournemouth with his new wife and left his family behind. You know, not only um, his his brothers and his 
um, you know, he's, he's great, but his own family, his wife and children, he left behind. He married another girl, you know, he just moved away and started a new life. And um, he's never spoken a word to either me or Duncan since he left. What year was that? Uh, 2008, so 15 years ago. That's wild. Mm. And he doesn't talk to, it's not just us, he doesn't talk to his family. You know, he, um, his mum and dad have both died since he left. He didn't come to either funeral. You know, he's literally cut his family off completely to live with his new family. And whenever he does an interview, he will tell incredible stories about management issues and members of the band stealing off him and all sorts of utter untruths <laughs> that that he uses to justify his actions, you know. It's very strange. He's, uh, as I say, you know, some of us change a little, some of us change a lot, you know. There's what some change beyond the point of recognition, it seems, mm. yeah. But, you know, Does there come like a point... I always say, you, you choose your friends, not your family. Yeah, and, and family are, you know, very complex institutions, mm -hmm. um, and they can be the greatest or the single most, you know, pain-causing, pain-inducing yeah, things. It, it, Does there come a point for you guys when... where you have to just let it go and heal and move Absolutely. on. How long, how long did that take where you're just like, okay, we've, we've waited long enough. Well, now. for me, it was, it was immediate was really. It? Yeah. Because I knew how he was going to behave because of the way he switched. You know, he was a different guy, you know, to the guy I'd grown up with, you know, he was, he was my kid brother. And, you know, I'd always had a relationship where I knew him, you know, and I knew I knew how he was going to behave. I knew what he was going to do, what he was going to say in re relation to everything, you know. He, and when he was misbehaving, I would say, don't worry, he'll come around, he'll be okay and all that, you know. Um, because I knew him. But then the, there came a point where I felt I no longer knew him, you know. He, he really changed that much. And, um, I mean... Quite a few years before he left, I was seriously just considering walking away because it, it had just become more and more difficult, you know. Um, Brian, who passed away, our sax player. He seemed like a beautiful guy. Well, he, he and Ali were best friends from the age of 11. They were inseparable, you know. They were best of pals at school. They did everything together. And there was nobody more destroyed by Ali's leaving than Brian, you know. He never spoke to Brian either. He's never spoken a word to Brian or any other member of the band since he left, you know. And Brian took it much worse than I did. I'd Because I'd gotten used to the idea when he left, I, I knew he was leaving. I kept saying to other members of the band, Ali's going to go, you know. So I knew that was happening. Brian never accepted it. Brian just, no, he won't. No, he won't. He'll, you know, he'll come round, etc. He never did. And uh, and when he did leave, there was no one more destroyed than than Brian. He he never accepted it. You know, he never got used to the idea and was always deeply hurt. As were, you know, all of the members of the band, really. 
but uh, and quite possibly me the least <laughs> because you know I I knew it was coming. Yeah, I think you know sometimes you just have to learn to let go, don't you? That's the the only option and yeah. and the best form of of healing and moving forward. Yeah, maybe that's what he decided. Yeah. What he wanted to do was let go, you know, and the only way he could feel better about himself was to was to let go of the family that he had and form a new one and you know that's what he did mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With all of these incredibly successful covers records that you guys put out over the years, I'm imagining you must have changed the lives of so many of the original artists um, just in terms of them finally getting the financial compensation from royalties and whatnot that they were, you know, yeah, well, always in deserve of, but never received. Yeah, the, the artists the that I've was. met over the years, um, and I've met most of them now. You have over the years, Amazing. yeah, yeah, and uh, they've all told the same story. Really, was uh, that they never got paid when they made a record. They got paid like a session fee, and that half the time they signed the rights over to the label owner. The producers, mm -hmm. you know, who are usually um, it's usually the same labels in Jamaica, uh, Studio One, which was Coxon's label, and the Treasure Isle, which was Duke Reed's label, uh, and generally those two labels tended to steal <laughs> the uh, the rights, you know, or get get the artist to sign away the rights. Half the time they didn't know what they were signing, you know. And they got paid literally like 50 bucks for doing the record. One and done type thing. And that was yeah. it, yeah. And they never saw a, another thing. Um, I remember the uh, first time I met John Holt was in uh, Florida, uh, in Miami. And, um, I mean, he was one of my idols as a kid, you know, John Holt. Not, 
much difference in our age, actually, because he was he was making records from when he was a kid. Um, and yeah, when I met him, he said to me, you know, the first time I ever got a check for a record was when you guys recorded Where You To The Ball. And I said, really? The first time ever? And he said, yeah, I've ne I'd never received because you put me down as the composer. He says, and my publishing company collected money on my behalf for the first time in my life because <laughs> that was it was a song I wrote in 67 or whatever it was, you know, and uh, when he was with the Paragons. And um, he said that was literally the first time I ever got a check for one of my songs. He said, no, it set me on a road, he said, of trying to collect what's rightfully mine, you know. He says, and I'm still doing it now. And he said, and at the moment, we've got uh, Blondie's record company are in court with the us. Tide is high. Over Tide is High. Yeah. And I said, you've never seen any money for Tide is High? And he said, no, but I'm going to. Mate, that's, although that's so tragic on the one hand that these people never got the compensation they deserve, that's really fucking incredible and inspiring and beautiful that these oh, wheels have been set in motion through... Totally. Uh, I mean... <sighs> Um, you couldn't possibly claim that that was the reason we made the records. We made the records because we loved them. You know, we wanted everyone to know what we'd grown up on. We wanted everybody to know why we fell in love with this music, why these songs were so, why we thought these songs were so wonderful, you know? And that was the original reason. But the side effect was that all of those original artists suddenly started getting paid. And we were selling millions of records. So they were earning suddenly many thousands of pounds, you know. Another one, um, Lord Creator, Patrick Kendrick. We, we were playing uh, Sunsplash in Jamaica. And after we did the concert, we were leaving the next day from the hotel. I got a phone call and I've answered it. And it's it's uh, Lord Creator. And I've gone, Oh my God! How wonderful! Again, absolute that. hero to you. Yeah, right? absolute yeah. hero. Yeah, one of my all-time favourite songs, Kingston Town. You know, and um, he said, uh, "Is there any way I can meet you? I want to meet you guys and say thank you." And uh, I said, "Oh, we're checking out now. We're we're leaving." And he said, "Oh God, can't can't you just? I'll be I could be there in an hour." And I said, "We're catching a plane. You know, we've got." And I said, "Um." If you're in Kingston, can you go to the airport? We'll see you at the airport because we'll be at the airport in an hour's time. So he said, okay, I'll see you there. So we've driven to the airport. We've arrived at the airport and there's this middle-aged man with three generations of his family. He brought them all. Literally oh, like wow. 20 people from little children to, you know, his wife and... and um. He hugged us, you know, literally hugged us. He started to cry while I'm hugging him. So I started to cry, couldn't believe it. And uh, he said, I was in hospital having just had an operation. I was homeless. I had no way of paying the bill. I was lying in bed thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And I received a check for your guy's recording of Kingston Town. And he said, and he paid the hospital bill. 
and I built a house. <laughs> wow. And that was, you know, and that was when he started to cry when he, when he told us that, you know, and it was, and moments like that just make it all worthwhile, you know. You well, never forget those moments. That's got to I hope be he doesn't mind. I hope he really doesn't mind me telling that story. I've told it a few times just because it was just one of the most moving times of my life, you know. And the rewards that you get for that, you know, that you you feel having made that much difference. And you know that every one of those artists has received money like that, you know, for the first time in their lives many times for songs that they wrote and, you know, had the proceeds stolen off them, basically. And it's the fact that we recorded those those songs and and gave them the credit, you know, for the first time ever, suddenly they're receiving money for something they've been doing all their lives, you know. And it's, it's just fantastic to know that, that you can make that much difference to people, you know, to people's lives. Without it ever being the intention in the first place, that's, you know, that's the bonus. Is That's the difference you've made to people. Yeah, that's the stuff of life right And they're there. the people that made you make the music in the first place, you know. They're the people that inspired us to do what we did, you know. So for them to be getting it back after all this time is, for me, it's just, it's a wonderful completion of the circle, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. What about on the other end of the spectrum, like, say, the Presley estate? Did you ever have any interaction with them after Can't Help Falling In Love With You? No. No? <laughs> no. Neither did we with Neil Diamond. Right, yeah. Who, um, red, who red wine. owns Red Red Wine. Uh, I was told, actually, that he didn't write it. He just bought the song. He bought the rights to the song. It's, a, it's an old temperance song from the 1800s, apparently. Right, 1800s. The 1800s, wow. yeah. Who's he buying uh, that off then? Who owned, who owned that? It it was out of uh, it was out of ownership. It was one of those songs. He because he was part of that, you know the um, what's what was it the Brillby Building, you know all the writers, Carol King and yeah. Neil Diamond and various other people, Neil Sedaka and there was a whole team of great songwriters who wrote many many hits. Um, and apparently, I was told by a Rolling Stone journalist that he didn't actually, even though he's written some great songs, he's a brilliant songwriter, he didn't actually write that. He was trawling through the archives of old songs that were out of ownership. And uh, he found this one song, this temperance song, and bought the rights to it, apparently. I don't know how true that is, but that's what I was told by a, a Rolling Stone journalist, that he bought the rights in the 60s to that song. Um, and he recorded it and had... A modicum of success with it you know it was i think it got to number 60 or something in the chart in american charts you know and was kind of you know disappeared without trace but tony tribe a jamaican singer he rec he did a version of it uh jimmy james of the vagabonds did a version of it uh there's another guy who did an r&b version so it was obviously people liked the song especially musicians liked the song and could see some potential with it you know and, yeah, we heard the Tony Tribe, which was massively popular when I was a kid, you know, when I was like 15 or 16. It was in the youth clubs and the the pubs and stuff, you know, where I hung out with my mates and my brothers. Um, we heard that tune and it was just part of the theme tune of our teen years, you know. So when we came to do it, that was one of the songs 
And we had no idea that it was a Neil Diamond song. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, Until your version is it. definitely the definitive version. <laughs> well, yeah. We, I think for a lot of people, they would say that. Most people, I would presume, wouldn't even know that there's any other versions other than yours out there. No, but anyone who grew up listening, the same as us, who, who listened to you know the 60s uh, Rocksteady, would say, the Tony Tribe version's the one. You know, because we were we were covering that version, so he was the first guy to do it in a reggae style. He was the guy who did the reggae cover of it that um, that we fell in love with. You know, what about some of the most memorable performances for you guys? Like you know, the Nelson Mandela birthday party and moments like that where you're it's beyond music almost, and it's a cultural moment in time. There must have been several of those for you guys. Well, that that Mandela thing felt a bit bit like a commercial exercise for a lot of artists that were there right um so it's a bit gross was it it's kind of tainted you know uh because you felt like people were there for the exposure rather than the reason they were supposed to be there much more rewarding was when we first went to south africa in 90 when would it have been early 90s i can't remember the exact year um but we'd, we'd observed the cultural boycott, you know, for the first whatever years of uh, of our career. Um, and our music had actually been banned in, South, in apartheid South Africa. Our music was banned because we'd done a few anti-apartheid songs, uh, like Burden of Shame and Sing Our Own Song was the, probably the most obvious. Um, Burden of Shame is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, Burden of Shame was was uh, was banned, and as was Sing Our Own Song, um, and for then Mandela to get out and then become president, and apartheid is finished, outlawed. You know, South Africa's a different place, and then suddenly we get invited to go there at the height of our careers. You know, so it was just wonderful to go there for the very first time, and. We still hold the live record in South Africa. We played three nights in a football stadium, 70,000 people a night. We all, did... all sold out. Just oh, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely sold. Yeah, we did 210,000 people over three nights. And it was, uh, I mean, it was packed, absolutely packed to the rafters. You know? <laughs> we, um, How can you even put a feeling like that into words? It's difficult. It's very. It was very emotional. Uh and the thing was, we then sang, sing our own song, and they sang it back to us. And to have 70,000 people singing to you is fantastic anyway. But to have them singing anti-apartheid lyrics in South Africa, a mixed audience of black and white all together, all singing, dancing and having a good time, a situation that couldn't have existed literally, you know, a couple of years previous. To have that and to have them all singing back the words of a song that you know was banned. You know, they're all singing Amanda Away Too, which which was actually the, you know, the ANC cry, you know, together we have power, Amanda Away Too. And that's where I nicked the saying from, you know. Um, and to have them singing your lyrics back at you, you know, in South Africa with with Mandela as president was just there was a real uh goosebump moment you know it doesn't get better than that 
No, and again, it highlights the unifying universal power of music, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and we'd we'd been we'd been given awards and stuff for our stance against apartheid, you know, from South African movements and and stuff. We you know we'd been recognising that, but we we could never go there because of the cultural boycott, you know. Although not everyone observed that cultural boycott. There's some very notable. Of course. Exceptions. Um, but, you know, we did observe it. And, to be, and to, to be able to go there in the early 90s when it was all changed and everything was different, you know, and to just feel the atmosphere in the country where black people were walking around with a completely different attitude. They'd been, they'd been unleashed, you know, they'd been freed. They'd been they'd liberated. Just, yeah. Absolutely liberated is the word I was groping for. Yeah, <laughs> they were totally liberated. And you could feel it in the air. You could feel it in everyone's attitude, the joy, the just complete sense of freedom, you know, was phenomenal. And I've been back since and it didn't feel the same because obviously, you know, the... The euphoria had died down, you know, and, reality uh, and the realities in. had set in. Yeah, yeah. Of course. But at that point, when it was all brand new and all fresh, and it, it really was a historic moment in time, you know, to to go there and and to be treated like royalty, you know, very VIP guests, you know, was just a wonderful thing, and uh, never to be repeated. Has there been talks about turning the story of UB40 into a film? Because <laughs> yeah, many times, this yeah. is this. I mean, it is a movie. You know, you you see so many band biopics, mm. and yeah, you know, it's a, a, often a very similar storyline and arc. And but there's just, there's something really cinematic and, and you yeah. know fiction like almost about this journey and this. this yeah. story. Do you think it will ever happen? Is it? I have come no close? idea. I, people talk about it. You know, there's been a few. Uh, documentaries as you said you know the the problem is that because of the split in the camp you know uh, you tend to get a different story from uh, from one side I did notice that, that in the documentary abs- <laughs> that has it's nothing like that. <laughs> to do with reality yeah it's a complete reinvention of history you know um, and it, it's, it gets very difficult to tell the story when when other people have, you know, a completely different truth to you, you know, and and tell it just as earnestly. Yeah. You know, but the difference is that I know he's lying, you know. I I watched that documentary and I'm listening to stuff and just, like, I'm, I'm incredulous, you know. Um, also, the fact that Astro was with Ali then, was incredible because just a few years previously, Astro had done interviews where he'd said that it was fantastic working without Ali because the ego had left, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And then a few years later, there he was, having been bribed to leave and go and join him. He he was there now telling a, a different story, you know. His story seemed like you guys made a country record and that was the final straw, which seems a little bit excessive. Well, the... <laughs> The the day he left, two of his very best friends came to me and said, what the hell's happened? 
what's going on? And I said, well, he left because he hates the album, apparently. That's what he's telling everybody. And I said, I know that that's what Ali's come up with as his reason for leaving. That's what Ali's told him to say, and that's what he's saying. And they went, but he loves that album. And I said, I wish you could tell the world that, because no one's going to believe you, because he's gone on record as saying that, you know, he's ashamed of the record, and it's and they were going, he loves it, he plays it to death. Because they're good friends of his. They were saying, he kept playing us the demos and stuff and going, listen to this one, listen to this one. And he was like, he loves that album. And I was going, I know that. <laughs> but, you know, that's the story they've decided to create, you know. And the thing is, he's got his own fans and they're always going to believe him. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how many times you tell the truth. They'll believe his truth, you know. And... Uh, I guess if he repeats it often enough, he'll start believing his truth. <laughs> yeah. Did Did you get closure with Astro before he passed? Did you reconnect nope. in any way? No. No, because you know he cuts us all. He also cuts his friends off as well. Those friends I was talking about, uh-huh. I'm going to name them, but uh, yeah, they he wouldn't speak to them again. He wouldn't answer the phone even. He just he cut them off because they were still friends with us. So that was it. I think there's a way you could do the film to explore both sides and really highlight the insanity of the whole thing. <laughs> well, that, that documentary kind of did it, really, because yeah. people were coming to us saying, how could he say that? How could he say that? What the hell? You know, Who but, would play you, Robin, if it was a proper <laughs> biopic? Oh, I honestly, I can't imagine it. I mean, I, I really don't enjoy those kind of biopics anyway. Do you not? Because they're always somebody's version of the truth. You know, yeah, they never yeah. are the truth, are they? Um, Would you do a book? Well, me and Ali did do a book. Right. And that was oh, horrendous because <laughs> even while we were doing it, I was saying to him, you can't say that. That's not true. And he was going, yes, it is. And I, I was saying, no, you can't say that about your parents. You can't say that about, you know, that's not true. And he was he was uh, determined to say what he wanted to say in the book. And I ended up, you know, saying to, we had like a, a ghost writer, you know, and who I was interviewing us both. <laughs> and it, he was interviewing us both and saying, you know, uh, how can you be saying that? And he's saying that. And I was going, because I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what really happened. He's reinventing the past to justify, you know, his beliefs, his actions, whatever, you know. I, I said, but I'm not going to publicly fall out with him. So I had to basically not support the things he was saying, but but not contradict them, you know, not argue about it, because otherwise we'd have ended up, the book would have been hilarious, you know, would have been a, that's not true. Um, so, yeah, I, I had to let him get away with saying things that weren't true, really, in the book. And I've hated that book ever since. You know, I've hated the fact that I, I allowed him to get away with it, really. I always was annoyed uh, with the end result because there's just so much in there that's not true. But I guess, you know, if, if different people are telling a story, they always come out with their own version of the story. And I, I guess if if all of us sat down in a, in separate rooms the story had come out slightly differently, you know, because it's it's from everyone's point of view, isn't it? Um, that, I guess that's life, you know. Everyone's got their own version of what happened. 
Yeah, it's a complicated thing. And I think, um, you know, irregardless of the factual truth, what is undeniable is the, you know, the legacy that this band has and nothing can taint or take away from that. And at the end of the day, it's the music and the things that that music has done to people's lives that ultimately is what, you know, matters, isn't it? And, and that yeah. can never be t- taken away or absolutely, diminished. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we had, we had uh, 25 really good years and we're still having them, you know, especially with, um, with Matt, young Matt Doyle, who's now our lead vocalist. Yeah. He has completely changed everything. He's, he's reinvigorated the whole band. We're a bunch of, you know, old guys having a ball again because he's, his enthusiasm, his youth and vigour, you know, has absolutely inspired us. And, you know, we're, we're just having a ball again because he's so full of it. He keeps coming with new lyrics and new ideas and, you know, I've, I've written this and I've written this. And, and it's, it's brilliant. Normally, it's like getting blood out of a stone trying to get the other guys to come with a lyric, you know. I mean, we are still, obviously, we lost Brian, who was our most prolific lyricist from the beginning to, he seemed you know, in many ways to be like the heartbeat of the band from that documentary as well, a real spirit. And a... Oh, for sure, for sure. He was he, he was a big part of the band. And, I mean, I, I said when he, when he died that um, there was a massive Brian-shaped hole in the band that could never be filled, you know. Um, and he was the most prolific lyricist. But um, I wrote a lot of the lyrics. Jimmy wrote a lot of the lyrics. Um, and Norman's written a few, Earl's written a few over the years. Ali never wrote a lyric in his life. Um, so the lyricists are still in the band. You know, we're, we're still, um, we're still writing songs, but having Matt there, he's just, he's just fresh, you know, and he's full of enthusiasm and, um, he's been given a dream that, you know, he couldn't quite believe when he was offered it because he, he grew up on us, you know, he grew up on the music. He talks about singing the songs um, in the on the back seat of his parents' car when he was three years old, you know. He's been listening to our music since he was born. So uh, for him, you know, to be a 30-year-old and now in the band that he grew up on, you know, it's another beautiful full circle moment. Absolutely, yeah. And he's just having a whale of a time. It took him a while to um, to ease into it, you know, to relax into it. He's been great from the off. I knew he was going to be good uh, because we worked with him when he was in Kyoko, you know. Um, I knew he was capable and I knew he could do the job. I had no idea how good he would be. And will continue to improve, I imagine. It's only going to get better, isn't it? For sure, for sure. Um, And he's getting better as we speak. He just keeps coming up with new stuff, new ideas, and and an enthusiasm that is infectious, you know? And uh, that, to me, just breathes new life into an old band, you know, that probably would have just faded away. If we were still the eight originals, we'd probably have stopped by now, you know, because we'd all have had enough of each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, 
and the antics, you know, and the problems. Uh, but there are still four of the original eight, and we're loving it, you know. We we still see ourselves as a gang. We're still tight. You know? I can see that just from the interactions with the three of you just before we sat down to chat. I was like, oh, this is a this is a unit here. Well, again, this is. Uh, another the next generation. Matt, yep. Matt is my son, you know. And oh right, for right, him, right, right. For him now to be managing the band is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Love it. And I didn't make that connection. And Matt Doyle, yeah, is Norman's nephew. Amazing. <laughs> so this, the lineage continues. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, Matt, my son, jokes about you know when we're all gone. There'll still be a UB forty because they'll just they'll just keep bringing on members of the fam of the family, and uh, creating new members of the band you as know? it should be, and that's that Birmingham thing, isn't it? Family and friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no reason why UB forty, you know, shouldn't continue, um, even when there's none of the original members left. There could still be, you know, some form of UB forty touring and recording. Well, it's, you know, it's when you're bigger than the sum of your parts, which is what UB40 represents now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're an institution. <laughs> I'll drink to that. 45 years, mate. Yes. I'm going to come down to one of these shows <laughs> for sure. And before we know it, it'll be the half century, 50 years. Good we're going to get there. And there's got to be something amazing planned for that. But that's for then. I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait. I really never thought... Even at, you know, at 30 years, I never imagined I'd still be doing it at 40. And here we are at 45. You're talking about 50. And if I'm if I'm still around, I'll still be doing it. I can't imagine stopping, really. You'll be here. You look great, mate. You look incredibly well. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, yeah, congratulations on everything. And long may it continue. Long after you and I and whoever else is gone. Let's keep this UB40 flame burning. Yeah, man. <laughs> nice one, Robin. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. Pleasure, it's been man. great. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.